What's up, my little donuts? How are you today? This is Friday, and I am your host, Gina. And today is Friday, which means it is Friday Friday, where I sit down with you every Friday and tell you a true crime story. So today we're going to Circleville, Ohio. Circleville, Ohio is like 30 minutes away from Columbus, Ohio, 30 miles or 48 kilometers away from Ohio. Every year, October 18th to October 21st, they hold the Pumpkin Festival. Circleville, Ohio was a cool place to live back in the late 60s until a barrage of anonymous letters postmarked Columbus, Ohio started showing up in everybody's mailboxes. So let's start in the beginning. 1966, two people received letters, Roger Klein and Dr. Ray Carroll. Both of them received letters, signed the Circleville writer. Roger Klein's letter was accusing him of having an affair with a teacher and fathering her child. Dr. Ray Carroll's letter that he received was accusing him of being a pedophile. So we're going up 10 years, 1976. Mary Gillespie and her family became the focus of the Letterville writer, accusing Mary of having an affair with superintendent of schools, Gordon Massey. Mary's first letter read, stay away from Massey. Don't lie when questioned about him. I know where you live and has been observing your house. And know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it seriously. Everyone concerned has been notified and everything will be over soon. Mary kept this letter a secret to everybody, including her husband, Ron Gillespie. So now Ron, he started receiving letters. Ron's letter said, Dear Mr. Gillespie, your wife is seeing Gordon Massey and you should catch them both together and kill them. He doesn't deserve to live. If you do not, you will pay. Ron confronted Mary. Mary denied everything, but he was just like, what the fuck? They're threatening my life. But again, Mary denied everything. So he was like, all right, strike number one. I'm joking. I don't know. But he was like, okay, fine. So two weeks later, he received another letter. And it said, Gillespie, you've had two weeks and have done nothing. Make her admit to everyone the truth and inform the school board. If not, I will broadcast it on CDs, posters, signs, billboards, and radio until the truth come out. We know what car you drive and we know what school your kids go to. Now they bring the kids in if that ain't right. So now, just like the writer said, signs started popping up about the Gillespie's daughter. So Ron and Mary start trying to figure out what can they do. So they called over Ron's sister and her husband, Karen and Paul Freshour. So they called him over to the house and nobody else knew about this. They called him over to the house and they were just like, who do y'all think did something like this? Or who do y'all think can do something like this? So Mary came up with a suspect, David Longberry. David Longberry was a fellow bus driver and a co-worker of Mary. 
Mary said that she thought that he wrote the letter because he asked her out one day and she declined and she think that he was trying to get back at her because he was bitter. So they all got together and they, they said, we're going to write him a letter. So they wrote him a letter. They had Paul write the letter. So they wrote him a letter and it seemed like the letter stopped. But then they started receiving letters again. Mary received the letter and said, everyone knows what you have done. If you don't believe me, just make everyone mad and you'll find out for itself. And it went on to say, it's your daughter's turn to pay for what you have done. I will come and put a bullet in that little girl's head. Mary was livid as she should have been. August 19th, 1977, Ron received the call. Sorry, I had to reposition. Ron received the call. So as soon as he received the call, he wasn't on it that long. He slammed the phone down. He grabbed his gun and he kissed his daughter and said he was going to stop this writer. He jumped into his car. A few hours later, Ron's car was found, crashed into a tree. Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe, he ruled it foul play. But then he changed his ruling and he ruled it an accident, saying that Ron was traveling at a high speed and lost control of his car and went into went off of the road and crashed into a tree and was killed. He also said that Ron was drinking and driving, and that's why he crashed his car. He lost control and crashed his car. However, his gun, Ron's gun, was under his body, and one round was shot. So was it murder or was it an accident? The official report said that he was drunk driving, despite friends and family saying he did not drink, and despite his daughter saying he hadn't smelt like alcohol when he kissed her. But they said that his blood alcohol level was 0.16. The pathologist who did his autopsy was Dr. Ray Carroll. You remember him. He received the letter, 1966. So now other residents started receiving letters, spilling their secret along with spreading the rumor or whatever you want to call it, spreading around that Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe was covering up Ron's death. But Sheriff was like, nope, no, I'm not. I even got a suspect. He passed the polygraph. But when they asked, well, who was your suspect? Nobody, he didn't tell nobody. But he said that he passed, they passed the polygraph. He didn't even say whether or not it was a male or female. He just said, don't worry about who it was. They passed the polygraph. So it was drunken driving. But Paul was trying to urge him. It wasn't an accident. After Ron's death, Mary actually admitted to seeing Gordon Massey, but she said that the affair wasn't until after Ron died. So six years later, February 2nd, 1983, Mary was driving along her route, her usual route where she normally drive, and she was getting ready to take the school bus back. So she starts seeing signs popping up about the whole situation about her daughter and everything. So Mary was really, really pissed off. She jumped off the bus bus at the last sign and she started ripping at the, at, at the sign. And it was really hard 
to get off. She, she saw that it was connected to a box. So she said, fuck it. I'm going to start ripping off this box. I'm going to just rip it all off. She got it off and she was trying to see what was in the box. She couldn't open the box up. So she got back on the bus. She put the, the sign and everything in one of the seats and she drove to drop off the school bus at the garage. Jumped in her car, went on home. She's at home and she's trying to get this box open. She saw it was a string there. And she's just trying to rip it open. And she finally got it open. And she realized that the string was wrapped around a trigger of a firearm that was in the box. So she said, no, no, hell no. She took it to the police station. Police was like, okay. She told them everything what happened. And they was looking at the firearm and they saw that it had the serial number was scratched off, but not all the way scratched off. So they was like, okay, maybe we'll be able to lift some, if not no fingerprints, we can get the serial number and see who this gun belonged to. So February 25th, 1983, there was a break in the case. They found the, they got the serial number. They got the full serial number. So now they know whose gun it belonged to. The gun belonged to Paul Freshour. When they approached Paul and was like, yo, what happened? What's up? What's going on? Paul said that the gun was stolen from his job. Paul worked as the supervisor of quality control at Anheuser-Busch Brewing Company, stationed in Columbus, Ohio. So now they took Paul in. They, they got to get some questions. They got to talk to Paul. They asked him when did the gun get stolen? Why didn't you put a police report in? Paul couldn't really answer those questions. But we around that whole time, Paul and Karen was going through a bad divorce. Paul got everything. So the divorce was not amicable at all. He even got custody of the child. Karen had to move out. Karen started dating a guy who drove a yellow El Camino. They, she was just getting her life. He was, one of the, he was one of the men, you know, she decided to date that month or whatever. So, so an arrest was made. They arrested Paul for attempted murder. And while he was arrested, they, needed, they wanted to get a writing sample from Paul and told him to try to emulate the letter that they gave him. They gave him one of the Circleville letter writers and they told him, to try to emulate them. They handed them a couple of letters. So Paul was like, okay, I'm going to try to emulate these writings. So when it came to the trial, Mary testified. She stated that she became suspicious of Paul after Karen approached her about Paul telling her that the letter, she found some letters in the toilet and all she was able to make out was the name Gillespie. Paul's boss had to testify because Paul wasn't at work the day the signs popped up. So now October 24th, 1983, Paul was found guilty of attempted murder and was sentenced to seven to 25 years in prison. The prosecutor was Roger Klein. Yeah, y'all remember him. And a relative of his was actually the judge. It was Judge Klein who sentenced Paul to 25 years, to seven to 25 years in prison. So now Paul is in prison. The letters don't stop. 
Paul, they put Paul on a pen and paper band. The letter still didn't stop. So now they actually had somebody sitting there looking at Paul. Do not take your eyes off of this man looking at him. Letter still was being mailed out. They were sporadically tossing Paul's cell, knowing he didn't have paper or pencil in his cell, and still the letters kept coming. They put Paul in solitary confinement, and he received a letter there. Yeah, Paul received a letter in solitary confinement. The letter was marked Columbus, Ohio. Paul was in prison in Lima, Ohio, which is 90 miles away from Columbus, about 90 miles or an hour and a half away from Columbus. Paul even received a letter in solitary confinement. And his letter said, now, when are you going to believe you aren't getting out? I told you two years ago when we set them up, they stay set up. Don't you listen? No one wants you out. Ha ha. Tell no one of this letter. I saw the paper. Great news. Sheriff loved it. Out of that, with them going through all of this, knowing Paul is not writing these letters, when Paul received the letter, the warden got on the phone and called Karen like, Karen, yo. We know Paul is, he, he cannot possibly be writing these letters. And he told her everything what they've done. So somebody is lying. And they set this man up, but they didn't let him out. Seven years later, Paul was on parole. He was able to fill out for parole, but his parole was denied. And let me tell you why. They wanted him to admit that he was the Circleville letter writer but he was like, I'm not going to admit that. So that's why they denied it. He went up for parole a few times, but they kept denying his parole because all they were concerned about, they wasn't concerned about if he feel that he changed, if he regretted what he did. Hell, if he actually did it, they were only concerned about him admitting if he was the Circleville writer and he kept denying it because that wasn't him. So May 1994, 10 years later, Paul was finally paroled. In October, he got out of prison. Unsolved Mystery got a hold of this with Robert Stack. It aired November 11th, 1994. And they got a letter. They, this Circleville letter give no fucks about who you are. The Circleville letter wrote, Robert Stack and told him, forget about Circleville, Ohio. Do nothing to Sheriff Radcliffe. If you come to Ohio, you El Sickos will pay. And it was signed the Circleville writer. <laughs> so Robert Stack was like, I give no fucks. We rolling up. It is what it is. So, so when Unsolved Mystery went to this city, they rented a building to do their interviews on, and they called people to come to the building to do the interviews. So Pam Satin, friends of Paul and Karen when they were married, said that Karen called Pam to see if she was going to get interviewed or whatever. Pa Pam was like, yeah, I think I might go over there. Karen instantly got pissed off and told, pa told Pam not to, not to participate. Pam like, girl, you cool and all, but I'm grown as fuck. You're not about to tell me what to do. 
So Pam was going to get her little interview on or whatever. And Pam said that she saw Karen across the street watching everybody and taking pictures of everybody who went into the building and exited the building. And she was also writing everybody's name. So now 48 hours investigation, they raise this new doubt about whether or not the case was solved with Paul's conviction. They did that with former FBI profile Mary Ellen O'Toole, who in her career with the FBI helped profile notorious criminals like the Unabomber, describes a person who doesn't appear to fit Paul's public persona. She believes that the anonymous Circleville writer had a serious personality disorder and enjoyed hurting people. Mary also believed that the person behind the letter who went to so much trouble to stay anonymous likely would not have risked putting the booby trap out. She says she thinks there's certainly a possibility that the booby trap was put up by somebody else who took advantage of the situation. Mary also believed that the writer could be someone other than Paul Freshour called into question the testimony of those two handwriting experts at trial that linked Paul Freshour to the letters. So 48 Hours asked a forensic document expert, Beverly East, to do a new analyst. So Beverly East, after comparing a selected of 49 of anonymous letters to Paul Freshour, to some of Paul Freshour's known handwriting. Beverly said that she is very confident she knows the identity of the Circleville letter writer. I will go to court and swear on a stack of Bibles on the evidence that I found. And she thought it was, she thought it was Paul. She thought Paul did it. So we're about to talk about the theories that everyone, because the Circleville letter writer has never been caught. I don't think, but let's just talk about the characters in this theatrical play, I guess you can call it. Mary, did she have something to do with it? Or these are the theories that people are talking about. Mary, they're saying Mary has to know who was because they knew so much about her. And then for out of all of the signs the other signs that they had up, she happened to just grab that one sign with the firearm in it and, you know, it didn't go off or whatever. So it has to be Mary. But when you think about it, it was a lot of horrible things said about her daughter. So I don't think it was Mary. David Longenberry. Well, David Longenberry, he did it. Maybe. Maybe he was the original letter writer until Ron's death. And then somebody took over for their own game because in 1999, he raped an 11-year-old girl before he went on a run for it. And they never caught him. They just found his body from completing the ultimate self-harm. So maybe he did it and was guilty about it, but I don't think so. I literally don't think it was that serious about him asking Mary out to go through these links. And then they knew everything about a lot of 
everybody a lot of about a lot of people in the city they knew a lot of their dirt so i don't think it was david karen fresh hour okay so let's think about karen her and paul was going through a divorce their marriage at around this time their marriage wasn't going well and in their divorce karen did not come out well she didn't get anything and she had access to paul's gun and that actually leads us into mark fresh hour paul and karen's son he was forced to actually pick sides between karen and paul because she gave him the choice you have to make a choice she told him she he had to make a choice and he knew everything he was able to get the gun for karen and just give it to karen so she can do the rest and to something about mark fresh hour 2002 he committed this ultimate self-harm they found his body near his house in a body of water karen said he battled from mental illness for a long time but it was undiagnosed so i think she did a lot on him to make him have that mental the mental health problems you don't tell a child you don't have a child choose between two parents that's just cruel i don't care if one of the parents is a truly dirtbag if that child loved that mom or dad you don't give them a choice that's that's horrible okay let's move on gordon massey's son they he's in this theory simply because some of the letters were signed with a w some of mary's letters was signed with a w so maybe and then is Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe. He's kind of like a suspect in this because he did it to, to gain a promotion. And if he was able to close this case, he would have won an election into office. But again, I don't, I don't see it. I don't see it. Paul, for the obvious reasons that we said in, this, in the whole story, Paul, but I don't think Paul did it either. Paul was the main person trying to push and urge Sheriff Ratcliffe to keep investigating in Ron's death. He was the main one. So why would he continue to push if it'll turn if everything would come back to him? Why would he do it? Him and Karen, his divorce with Karen wasn't amicable. However, he got everything, so he won there. So what would be the benefit of him doing that to Ron, for him doing that to any of them? Hell, he liked Ron, but then again, he probably did it because he liked Ron, and maybe he did do it. I don't know, but we got other things. Let's go. Let's move on. Dr. Ray Carroll, Dr. Ray Carroll, he's the one, he's the pathologist that did Ron's autopsy yeah let's let's just put this together he did ron's autopsy after he did ron's autopsy he moved to florida and they found out in 1993 he was going to be officially charged for 12 counts of gross immortality and sex crime corruption of a minor child pornography obscenity and decent exposure he was outed at that time he was outed by the letter writer 
as a pedophile. But by this time, the statute of limitation had ran out. So what happened was somebody came forward on the shit that he was doing that nobody knew about, but he had already moved to Florida. Yeah. So that's why it's a re I think he lied on Ron's autopsy because he was being blackmailed by the letter writer. Yeah, let's coming together now. The El Camino man, this was never brought up in court. The El Camino man. Now, Karen started dating a guy that was driving an El Camino. You know, she was just out there getting her life. And there was a witness that said 20 minutes before Mary rolled down that street, she drove down that street going the same direction. They were going to the same bus, the bus garage. They were both bus, school bus drivers. They were going in the same direction. And she said 20 minutes earlier before Mary rolled down that street, she saw a man in a white El Camino. And when she started getting closer to him, he turned away as if he was about to relieve himself. But they never mentioned that in court. So now we get to Roger Klein, the prosecutor in Paul's case. He was discovered, and y'all remember him, 1966, the letter writer, you know, sent them a letter. So the letter writer outed his ass for messing around on his wife with a teacher and followed, fathered one of her children. But sadly, the teacher and the child passed away. So he was called, he was the prosecutor. So he was just pushing, pushing, pushing. He, of course, he could have dropped it. It wasn't enough evidence, but he just kept pushing, pushing, pushing because he was being blackmailed as well from the letter writer. Paul Freshour, he maintained his innocence until his death in 2012, but he always thought that his gun was stolen by his son and did for, for Karen to set him up. So my thoughts are, what are my thoughts about this? I don't think Paul did it. I actually think Karen did it, started doing it at the end. I think she started doing it for her own gang to set up Paul, and she succeeded. Who was doing it in the beginning? Honestly, I think the person who was doing it in the beginning wasn't named in the story. So let me say, the person who was doing it in the beginning on my thoughts, I think it was Gordon Massey's wife. Nobody said nothing about her in this this whole story, this whole ordeal. She's the one that would have benefited more for hurting another family. She's the one that would have been so angry at Mary to bring her daughter into it because her whole life was exploding because of this affair. Mary asked, no, she lied, and she was messing around with Gordon Massey, and you lied, so you're a slut. She's dead now, but still, she, come on now, you messing around on your husband, and he ends up dead because he's trying to save you all? When you are seeing someone, and if you're single, let's look at it if you're single, if both people are single, and you are seeing each other, when you're speaking about that relationship, you never say, that you're having an affair with Jim John Bo or Luke. 
You never say that. You're saying you're sinning. However, if somebody is married, that is an affair. And Mary, she actually said they had an affair. They started their affair after, that's the word she said, affair after Ron died. So I don't know. This is a juicy one. This is a head scratcher. They never found out who it was, but it actually stopped. The last letter was the letter out to Unsolved Mysteries. And after that, nobody else got a letter from that. But my question is this, how did you get everybody's tea child? Because you knew the doctors, you knew the pathologist, you knew the the lawyer, the, the prosecutor, you knew everybody else's tea. Because it just wasn't this family. It was like a lot of people, a lot of other people in the city, but they zeroed in on Mary and they zeroed in on Mary and her family again because that was Gordon Massey's wife and it became personal to her. I wonder when did they start doing DNA testing, like the year? Because if they were doing DNA, if they had like then I know they didn't have it in the 60s, but maybe the 70s. I don't know. I don't know. If they had the DNA then and they found out who licked the stamp, who sealed the envelope, boom, no case. They got the person. But I guess, I don't know. But all right, guys, that's it for me. I do want to hear from you. I want to know what you think about it. I want to know who you think did it and why they did it and just all of that. Let me know all of that. You can leave a message. You can go into my show notes where all of my resources and email and contact information will be. You can click that link that says leave a message and you can leave me a 60 second message and that message will show up on the next episode. Before you go, like, follow, subscribe on whatever platform that you're listening to me on and hit that bell just so you'll know when the next episode drops. Share with your family, share with your friends, hell, share with your enemies, child. Just share this episode because, and see what other people think about it. You can email me at frido at myyahoo.com. That's F-R-I-E-D-D-O-E at myyahoo.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Podcast. And, well, yep, that's it for me, guys. Do good things, stay safe, stay vigilant, and trust no one.